Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. Hi, friends. Are you looking for a new podcast? Maybe something you can share with your littles? Something that has some storytelling in it? Well, then look no further. We have Storytime with Philip and Mommy, where my son and I sit and discuss all the great books that you might love while we read them. So, Little Golden Books, Berenstain Bears, and even the new classics like Bluey. We sit down, we read, we discuss, and we have so much fun doing it. Come and join us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So what a milk ladder is, we start with a small amount of milk that's been baked at a high temperature for as long as possible time. And as we go up the ladder, we decrease the heating and the cooking time accordingly. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. If your child has a cow's milk protein allergy, they may not need to avoid cow's milk protein forever. Today, we're talking about using a milk ladder for reintroduction of dairy foods with my guest, Karina Venter. Karina is a food allergy expert. She's the publisher of the original milk ladder, so she is the right person to be talking about for this topic. And while milk ladders have traditionally been used in more mild cases, mild to moderate cases of milk allergy, Karina is explaining how the milk allergy has transformed over the years and how kids with more severe milk allergies are actually having success with milk allergies, and then also how this approach is being adopted around the world to incorporate different food cultures' use of milk foods in milk-allergic individuals. Karina is an assistant professor of pediatrics, allergy, and immunology at the University of Colorado. She's one of the, if not the most well-known dietitian in the pediatric food allergy space. I've had the great honor of training with and learning from Karina as a student in her advanced pediatric food allergy certification for dietitians. She's my go-to on everything related to allergies, and she's a huge proponent of the 100 First Foods approach and baby-led weaning. Karina has been a guest on our podcast numerous times in the past. She's talked about topics like using an egg ladder, so she's got some research that supports egg ladder for the use of eggs in children who have egg allergy. She talked also about skin reactions from food and then other topics like, you know, why we don't need to wait three to five days between foods. But in today's episode, she's going to be teaching about milk ladders for babies with dairy allergy. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Hope you find it educational. I think you'll also be entertained. I think Karina has just uh, the perfect balance of expertise, but also she's just an amazing human being. So with no further ado, here is Karina Venter to talk about milk ladders for babies with dairy allergies. Hey, Katie, and thank you for inviting me back. Okay. I want to say first, congratulations on your book, The Health Professional's Guide to Nutrition Management of Food Allergies. I know it came out in ebook a while back. I'm kind of old school, though. I need to read books in person. I just got my print copy. It is such a wonderful reference. Just real quick, how was your experience writing the book? And also, like, where in the heck did you find time to do this? Yeah, sometimes I think I do squeeze more than 24 hours out of a day. 
But I know that you've previously had Marion Broach on the podcast as well. And Marion and I, we work very well together. So we did really share the load of the book. Um, unfortunately, they can always be just the one first editor or first author. We were also supported by Scott Sicherer and uh, John James, two MDs. But really every chapter um, was written by a team of a dietitian and an MD, even the diagnosis and the prevalence chapters. And we wanted to make it very clear that the dietitian plays a crucial role in the management of food allergy, in the diagnosis of food allergy, in the treatment of food allergy, and also in the prevention of food allergy. So we did join them up with an MD because we think it's a team approach, but definitely every chapter was led by um, a dietitian writer. And then we had some fantastic dietitians and um, allergists across the world who acted as reviewers, uh, first-line reviewers of every chapter. So it really was a team approach. It did take a lot of time. It was a dream come true. And we're very proud to have this resource available now for all healthcare professionals. But I also want to say, you know, any parent um, following your podcast will find this book extremely um, useful. We've talked at length about the role of dietitians in food allergy management. And there's certainly a lot in prevention and treatment, et cetera, but there's certainly a lot of work to be done. But having a good textbook reference is an important first step. And I know certainly I'm still teaching college nutrition courses. And for those that are in our medical nutrition therapy track, I will definitely include this as a resource because short of, I mean, I've taken your advanced training for dietitians in food allergy, but there's not a lot of educational opportunities sometimes. And so learning from you and Marion is certainly something that I think any dietitian who's interested in food allergies should, should most definitely pursue if they can. And today we're here to talk about milk ladders, right? We've done a lot of content about introducing potentially allergenic foods. You've been a guest here in the past. You've talked about things like egg ladders for reintroduction of egg for children with egg allergy. You've talked about skin reactions from foods that aren't true food allergy symptoms. We also did an episode on why you don't need to wait three to five days between new foods. You and I are very much on the same page that babies need to be exposed to lots more foods than we do with conventional spoon feeding. But today, talking about milk ladders for babies with dairy allergy, can you explain what a milk ladder is and how it works? Yes. So interestingly, you know, I've written many papers in my life that I'm proud of, but the milk ladder paper has had close to a million downloads now worldwide because it is such a practical tool for, you know, allergists, dietitians, and perhaps even parents. But I will explain what the milk ladder is. So um, about 20 years ago, we, we realized that some children develop tolerance or are able to eat baked forms of milk, like in a muffin or in a cookie, before they can actually drink milk from, from a cup or, you know, if it's an infant formula, if it's a young child. And I was working on the Isle of Wight at the time. And um, in England, we have milk chocolate buttons, which is really just a small piece of chocolate candy. And I started to get all these emails and phone calls from doctors in the United Kingdom asking me what comes before a chocolate button and what comes after a chocolate button. And so then I realized that there's a huge need to understand the sequential introduction of cow's milk. So what a milk ladder is, we start with a small amount of milk that's been baked at a high temperature for as long as possible time. And as we go up the ladder, we decrease the heating and the cooking time accordingly. So we really start with a cookie called in America or a biscuit as it's referred to in the United Kingdom. 
We go on to a muffin where we increase the amount um, of milk. Then we go to something like, like a waffle or a pancake. We go to cheese and yogurt. And then eventually we end up with, you know, just drinking a pure cow's milk that's not been heated. Now, is this for children who have a diagnosis of dairy intolerance, cow's milk protein allergy? Like who is the milk ladder for and who does it benefit? Okay, this truly is the million dollar question. And so at the time when I wrote this first milk ladder um, in England, we really wanted it to be used in children with what we called mild to moderate cow's milk allergy. I know you've previously talked about proctocolitis um, here. We get some babies with reflux, you know, then international guidelines say that the first line of treatment of troublesome reflux is cow's milk avoidance. And then we do gradual reintroduction. But the bottom line of it was, it was for children that was not going to be at risk of immediate type reactions, and most definitely not for children at risk of anaphylaxis. In England, getting back to the role of the dietitian, these children with the milder forms of cow's milk allergy are really being looked after by dietitians. And so this was a very easy tool to say, we take milk out of the diet, they get better. We reintroduce milk if the symptoms recur. We know they've got a milder form of cow's milk allergy. It can all be done at home. And then six to 12 months later, when we want to reintroduce milk, we do this in this sequential process, working from a cookie up to having a, a glass of milk. Then we started to realize when we looked at all these millions of downloads worldwide and speaking to allergists across the world, that people are starting to use it for children with IgE-mediated cow's milk allergy. Now, what IgE-mediated cow's milk allergy is, it's the immediate type of allergy where the child will have hives or rashes or, um, you know, acute vomiting or uh, anaphylaxis um, when they consume cow's milk. And there was a concern then that perhaps by using this ladder approach where we step children up from the cookie to the glass of milk at home can actually predispose these children to having severe symptoms. But nevertheless, um, this approach has been used very successfully in the United Kingdom, also driven by dietitians, but definitely overseen and supervised by allergists. A very good friend of mine, um, Jonathan Hurian, who's now an allergist in Dublin in Ireland, he's recently published a study where he showed that even in children with the most severe form of IgE-mediated cow's milk allergy, so they reacted to a drop of cow's milk to which less than 5% of cow's milk allergic children would react to. So these children were highly sensitive to cow's milk and he managed to get these children by following a ladder at home up to a glass of milk, at least half of them up to a glass of milk within 12 months of diagnosis, which is huge and safely done as well. So what I would like to say to the audience is that if your child have the milder forms of cow's milk allergy, where there's no immediate type symptoms, you can definitely download the many different kinds of ladders. And I'm sure we'll get to that in the next question. That's available online and do the ladder safely at home. If you want to do a ladder approach at home and your child has got immediate type cow's milk allergy, it has to be done under the supervision of an allergist. And like I said, it's now really done. It's done in the UK. It's done in Ireland. It's done in Canada. There's some centers in the United States where they are beginning to use it in IgE cow's milk allergy. 
some centers in the States are still very reluctant. So I'd say go see your allergist and follow whatever advice they are giving you. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Karina, in your esteemed opinion, do babies who don't have any signs or symptoms of cow's milk protein allergy, would they benefit from a sequential introduction of cow's milk protein allergy? Like I know in our 100 First Foods program, we give you a variety of different options. If you have an exclusively breastfed baby, right? If we're talking about formula fed babies, cow's milk protein is the base of the formula. It's kind of moot. But for exclusively breastfed babies, they can start with yogurt or a low sodium soft cheese like ricotta. But do you think that the research is indicating that maybe they should also be moving in a phase-wise approach through a ladder in order to you know, maximize tolerance or whatever the desired outcome may be? Yeah, you know, that's something that I do get asked, but we definitely haven't looked at. The one thing we know is once you put the allergenic protein in a child's diet, keep it in, in whichever way and form you like. So if we're ready to go on to ricotta cheese or we're ready to go on to yogurt as a first step of giving cow's milk, that's fine. If there is a reason why parents may want to go for something like a teething biscuit, make sure that there's cow's milk in it, then perhaps go for something like, like a muffin that's hopefully sweetened with um, applesauce opposed to a load of sugar. Then perhaps you can go on to that before you get to yogurt and before you, you get to cheese. That's acceptable as well. But just remember, once the protein is in, keep it in. And I do have families where um, the parents actually prefer to do the stepwise approach opposed to just going for a yogurt straight away or cheese. But then I have equally as many families that would say, you know, I have four kids, five kids. Everybody in the house is eating yogurt. We are just going to go straight for yogurt. And that's fine as well. In a clinical setting, how long would a milk ladder be used for? Do children essentially graduate back to a cup or two cups of fluid cow's milk a day? That really depends. If we now have a child with diagnosed, you know, reflux or proctocolitis or other forms of, of milder forms of cow's milk allergy, uh, what I used to do was I would wait until they're 12 months. That's what we used to do 10 years ago. And then I'd start the ladder pretty much knowing that we're going to be tolerant to cow's milk. And I would literally just work my way through the ladder, stepping up every two days because I wanted that kit on cow's milk. Now that we've learned much more about development of tolerance and the natural history of cow's milk allergy, we almost start with ladders right at the point of diagnosis. And so this may be a six-month-old that's a newly diagnosed with proctocolitis or proctocolitis diagnosis or reflux diagnosis about a month ago. Um, we may take two weeks for every step. We may take a month for every step. It also now, because they're so young, brings in um, develop ability to tolerate different kinds of textures, which I know you as baby lead winning expert is much more of an expert than me. But, you know, um, sometimes we may wait an extra week just before because we don't think the baby can just do a muffin yet or half a muffin yet. So it's sort of like a combination of 
of um, being developmentally ready and also being ready for the next step. But two to four weeks, I would say per step, if we start them almost right at the point of diagnosis. And then if you do the 12 step, um, it can be 24 weeks, which is six months. But I tend to use the six step ladder nowadays, which really gets me to um, 12 weeks, three months maximum before I get to the top of the ladder. And it could be sometimes up to four months. Can you talk a little bit about the different types of ladder you're mentioning? A six step, formerly a 12 step. I know there was an older version that you're always like, don't share this one, Katie. You got to share the new one. Give us the history. And and did you design the original milk ladder? Because there's lots of people's names on it, but like it's kind of your thing, right? Yeah. So I, I did um, design the, the original um, milk ladder with a group of dietitians from the United Kingdom. And so the first ladder we published in 2013, and that was the 12 step ladder. And that was really at the time when we were all new to ladders and we were a little bit, you know, anxious about introducing foods at home, even in the kids where we know there wasn't anaphylaxis. And it was also really driven by the UK um, team where I was working with. And so there's many kind of UK foods on there, you know, things like um, scotch pancakes and um, shepherd's pie and, you know, lasagna. And tons of added sugar, which I know we've talked about this before, but some of the recipes, I'm like, this is a cookie. Did dietitians write this? But I get the point here is about getting the protein. And hats off to the moms who contacted me on Twitter all the time to say, you got to get rid of all that sugar in the, the initial ladder. But because we became more confident, we realized that we can actually step up quicker. We can take bigger jumps between steps. And so we condensed the 12-step ladder into six steps. And we made it much more international. And we also um, adapted the sugar content. With that ladder, I worked with Roseanne Meyer very closely to adhere to the WHO standards of how much sugar can be added. And the majority of they were we don't actually add any sugar um to the milk ladder foods. It's all um fruit purees, and we also have more um savory alternatives. And what year was that, the six step one? 2017. We okay. did the six step one about four years later. So what's the next version? Is there another one coming? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So then then I was contacted by colleagues from India. And they said, Karina, we'll use your ladder, but our families want to eat, you know, um, Indian foods. And is there any way that we can make it more culturally appropriate for Indian um, patients and families? So we have just submitted it. We've gone through the first round of review. So I'm hoping to share with you shortly that we've got an Indian milk ladder published. And then I was also contacted by a colleague of mine, um, from Greece that said, we really need a Mediterranean milk ladder. So the Mediterranean milk ladder I have published with Emilia Vassalopolo, and I'm happy to share the link with you for that because it's also free to download. Um, But what we've done with um, the Mediterranean milk ladder, we actually got funding to look at whether the milk protein, when you test it in a laboratory, matches the calculated milk protein. Now, why would the milk protein that we test in the laboratory not be similar to what we calculated? Because we have milk protein in a matrix, so we bake it in wheat and we there's fat added and there may be eggs added. There may be six grams of calculated milk protein in this cookie, but the immune system can only really detect four grams because the other bits is sort of like hidden. So it's not disappeared, but it's sort of like hidden by the matrix. And so we really wanted to know whether 
the calculated proteins matches what the immune system can um, recognize. And then we can also break milk into two proteins. The one is the casein protein. Casein looks like a flat line. And we also always believe that when you cook this flat line, it's already a flat line. You can't change it. But we have now with the testing realized that you can slightly change this flat line and you can change the amount of casein the immune system can recognize. And there's another protein in milk called beta-lactoglobulin, which looks like a ball of wool. And if you cook foods with, with milk in, the beta-lactoglobulin unravel like a cat playing with a ball of wool. And now you can imagine if you don't cook it, the immune system sees a beautiful ball of wool and thinks, I don't like that. I'm going to launch a reaction to this. But when you cook it and you unravel it, all the immune system sees there's a heck of a lot of wool lying on the floor and it doesn't recognize it as a ball of wool and it doesn't actually launch an allergic reaction. But we weren't really able to ever calculate how much casein and how much beta-lactoglobulin is in each of these foods. And we really didn't know exactly how the heating would affect it, even though we assumed that the more you heat it, the longer and the higher the temperature, the more unraveling will happen. And so in this Mediterranean milk ladder, we have now actually also detected how much casein is in the food and how much beta-lactoglobulin. I'm happy to say that for the most of it, what we thought would happen happened. But there were some outliers, and so we did have to move the Mediterranean ladder a little bit around. And now as a mom, you may think, what's the point of listening to all of this? The point of listening to all of this is that I want to say to you is, when we publish ladders, we do the best we possibly can to get it standardized and academically correct. But there's a lot we still need to learn about how much protein the immune system can see and react to in each step of the ladder. And this is why it's so important if you use the ladder in a child with immediate type food allergies, where there may be a risk of anaphylaxis, that you follow the steps as well as you can, and you always do it under the supervision of an allergist, because it's not 100% exact science as of today but it will be because I'm doing as much research as I can to improve the ladders out there. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties. Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. I love this because I was going to ask you, this sounds like something parents get a hold of, especially, you know, there's so much gray area, as we know, in food allergies. Like, 
maybe your baby did have some proctocolitis. Maybe they outgrew it. You know, maybe they had a skin reaction and you never know you're, you know, either pregnant or you're not pregnant. Right. But you've been, we always say like, you're not kind of pregnant, but you've, you're talking about like a kind of food allergy and parents like, well, I'm just going to do this at home. But I just want you to reiterate that again, that this is not something, if your child does have cow's milk protein allergy of any degree, you shouldn't be trialing this at home on your own. Right. Definitely not, especially not in the immediate type allergy. I also don't want to come across as criticizing allergists who use this approach at home. These are highly skilled people. They've got a lot of training. They know what they're doing. So if your allergist advise you to do it at home under his guidance, please follow the allergist advice, but never, ever do this at home. It would be like starting to do oral immunotherapy, you know, to peanut at home without having an allergist involved. We, we don't want to do any risky um, behavior at home. There are some, if I can just be slightly critical, there are some ladders now out there that puts lots of different food in one step. So they would say a cookie is equivalent to a muffin is equivalent to a waffle. I'm very concerned about ladders that puts the same foods in the same step when we we know that the allergenicity differ quite a lot. So uh, my preference is really still for ladders where we have one single food per step. So we know what we're feeding the child, opposed to just saying we're putting all these foods in one step. And, and I think that is slightly less scientific even than the current ladders, which we are trying to make as scientific as we can. When you're mentioning all these different ladders, it's making me think of like flashbacks, like remember the 1992 pyramid and then old ways got a hold of the pyramid. And then there was a, you know, there was a soul food pyramid and a Mediterranean, I think they were most known for the Mediterranean period. But I think it'd be helpful if there was like one central place where it's like, where are Karina's ladders? Because like you said, there's sometimes, first of all, you've worked in like every country around the world. So I'm like, this is the ladder that she did when she was in the UK. This is what she did when she was in Colorado. But like, just to know again, that if you have cow's milk protein foods as part of your food culture, we should be making these tools for clinicians that do have culturally appropriate foods. I love that idea. Is there a plan to put them all in one place or because you publish them with different groups and entities and funding sources, I would assume that's not really feasible? Well, I think eventually we will put them all in one place, you know, because I, and I think I, I've just now mentioned the ladders that where I can understand the language it's written in. There has been many other versions of the ladders around the world where the ladder has been translated into different languages and different foods has been used. I've worked with a Brazilian group. They've got like a, a Portuguese version of the ladder with more, um, you know, Portuguese or Brazilian type foods. So that is one of my projects uh, on my list is to get all of these ladders onto one platform in all these different languages with all these different foods. And the Indian ladder is currently written in English, but we will most definitely um, translate it into Indian um, language as well. Well, you've literally trained like every pediatric dietitian who specializes in food allergies. So I feel like at this point, I know when I took your pediatric food allergy course for dietitians, it was so fascinating the dietitians from different countries. I got in a breakout group with some of the gals from Mexico City. I still stay in touch with them. And and just to learn the different ways that we're, you know, babies are learning how to eat foods all around the world. And there are a lot of commonalities, but like with our own 100 First Foods program, like those 100 foods are in North America. Some of them are available elsewhere. We'd love to see when other families take it and they're like, you know, I did persimmon instead of papaya or whatever the case may be that we're offering a variety of these foods in a safe manner. At the end of the day, that's the goal, which kind of leads me to my final question. Like, I know for me personally, our goal with baby led weaning and the work I do, I want to make force feeding infants by spoon 
a thing of the past because babies can eat so many more foods than we give them credit for. What do you hope for as the outcome of your life's work in food allergy? I mean, you have your hands in so many pots, like I can't, you can't even keep it straight some days. So bigger picture than just the ladder, but the ladder sort of like fits within that as well. I think we focused in food allergies so much on eating the food allergen for so many years. And we've forgotten that food allergens is just a protein within a food. And um, for me, and I do a lot of work with the uh, European Academy of Allergy and Clinical Immunology on this whole concept of immunonutrition. And it is just, you know, we feed allergens with, within a healthy diet. And that's the beauty of baby late weaning. You, you may not know that, but you're famous as well, because I quote you at every conference where I speak right from Australia through Asia, Europe, and back to the United States. You know, there's 100 foods in a 100 days, you know, that is amazing. So perhaps we are feeding peanuts and cashews and egg and milk within those 100 foods, but we're not just feeding these kids milk protein and egg protein. We're feeding them foods. They learn to love a variety of foods. They learn to eat foods in different textures. And um, when we talk about food avoidance, and now we talk about food reintroduction, and I've learned my lesson with that very sugary ladder, whatever we do in allergy, we have to think about the food. And I think that's the one thing I would like to leave the world with is that we're not just feeding or avoiding allergens, but we really need to see the bigger picture. And on that note, and not so much relevant to today, I have just published a diet diversity menu with Asian foods, as well as typical American, American foods. So um, not am I just trying to diverse my ladders, but I'm also really trying to diverse the whole concept of diet diversity, which you so beautifully do with your 100 foods in 100 days, but definitely thinking how different cultures and also different um, socioeconomic you know, classes can um, incorporate this into the baby's life. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Karina, thank you so much, as always, for sharing your time. I'm going to link up all of the references. I always have, to, first of all, you're, you not only do so many different things, but you're one of the few researchers who like responds to email super quickly. And you always are very thorough. Like we have some people like you can't ask two questions in one email because they can't write back. But I always write to you after the interviews. I'm like, can you please send me the diet diversity manual? I want to make sure I have the right Indian food guide ladder. So I'm going to follow up, get all of this from you. I'll put it on the show notes page for this episode. But tell us if our audience wants to get the most current version of the milk ladder, the six step one that you did, where do they go to get that? So that is actually published um, in Clinical and Translational Allergy. And the reason we published it in that journal is because it's free to download to anybody. 
So I will definitely um, give you the link. The ladder is there as well as the recipes that, um, you know, goes with the ladder. So happy to share that with you. Well, thank you so much, Karina. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Karina. I could talk to her all day long. She just starts opening up other areas where I'm like, oh, we need to talk about that. We need to cover that. And true to form, she responded to my email right away with all the links with some of the kind of missing pieces of the research and the different documents that I didn't have that she did mention in this episode. I will link that all for you on the show notes, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash three, six, eight. Thank you to our partners at Airwave Media. If you guys like podcasts that feature food and science and using your brain, check out some of the podcasts from Airwave Media. We're online at blwpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I'll see you next time. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.